been a challenging year for many, and how businesses and individuals react under pressure and manage risk can truly define their future. The Biden administration has made it clear that deterring corruption and fraud through aggressive enforcement is a top priority, and the Department of Justice is ready to take action. One of the U.S. government's most powerful tools to combat fraud and abuse involving government funds is the False Claims Act. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues that have surfaced and how courts are interpreting key issues under the False Claims Act. Additionally, we'll take a look at how the new administration is reshaping False Claims Act enforcement today and in the years to come. When a company does any sort of business with the federal government, it faces a host of regulations and a minefield of legislation. With the additional pressures many organizations are facing due to the pandemic, it's no surprise we've seen a rise in government enforcement of alleged corporate fraud. Although the official statistics haven't yet been released by the Department of Justice, it appears as though in 2021, the government recovered somewhere in the neighborhood of $4 billion under the False Claims Act, almost doubling the previous year's total. And it appears that a record number of False Claims Act cases are being filed. It's been an almost perfect storm. We're seeing rapid developments in technology alongside great economic pressures brought on by the pandemic. We've also watched as a new administration settled into Washington, one that seems to take a more aggressive approach to the enforcement of corporate crime. I'm Michelle Sartori, a partner in our Investigations White Collar and Fraud Practice Group in Washington, D.C. Joining me today to sift through some of these developments are my partners Gaja Gobena and Tony Fuller. Gaja is also a partner in our Washington, D.C. office, and he has almost 25 years of experience as both a former senior prosecutor and private attorney, helping clients navigate high stakes investigations and government enforcement actions, particularly in the area of healthcare fraud. Tony is a partner in our Boston office. He is a former federal prosecutor in Boston who defends corporations and their executives in criminal and civil investigations brought by the Department of Justice, the Securities Exchange Commission, and other federal and state agencies. Tony's practice covers a wide variety of industries, including life sciences, financial services, construction, government contracting, and higher education. So gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. I will expect those crisp $20 bills for those outstanding introductions of both of you. You're welcome. Appreciate it. (laughs) So let's discuss. As I mentioned, newly filed False Claims Act cases are at historic levels. Kasha, why do you think that is? Thanks for the question, Michelle. I think there's a uh, multiple factors in play. First, you have uh, the current administration is more friendly than others. Secondly, whenever you have higher levels of government spending, that attracts more whistleblowers seeing a potential payday at the end of the road. And we've seen, obviously, trillions more in spending uh, as a result of the various programs that have been put in place to respond to the pandemic. And that, that level of spending will always attract whistleblowers, no matter how meritorious their claims are. Third, over the decades that False Claims Act law and jurisprudence has been developing, you've got a relators board that's getting more and more willing to take risks. Um, they're more willing to um, roll the dice on, on cases, in part because the bar itself has more liquidity, but also you have litigation funding firms out there now seeing False Claims Act cases brought by relators, even if they're declined by the government to be risks worth pursuing and cases worth pursuing. So because of that, you'll see more more uh, whistleblowers and whistleblower attorneys filing cases. And finally, we're in this jobs market where you know we see a lot of people quitting these days. 
And then in the past, a lot of the whistleblowers were people who were sort of forced out uh, and then ultimately made a whistleblower claims claiming they were they were let go because of misconduct that they identified. Now I see more and more people deciding, you know, I'm going to go ahead and quit even before I'm pushed out uh, and see if I can strike gold with a False Claims Act case or a key TAM case. Yes, Kajan noted the Biden administration seems to be taking a tougher stance on enforcement of the False Claims Act and corporate crime in general. Do you have any thoughts on why that might be or what's going on with that? Certainly, um, there's a sense that the Biden administration is taking a tougher stance, although it remains to be seen in terms of actual actions being brought or um, in the specific uh, case of the False Claims Act cases, actually having assistant U.S. attorneys or DOJ attorneys intervening in cases, I expect it will. As with any, I think, Democratic administration, there's a perception that they're going to be tougher on corporate crime than their uh, Republican colleagues. And um, there's reason to think that, particularly now, because the Deputy Attorney General back in October gave a speech in which she outlined a couple of things that have changed since the previous administration. One of the ones that's particularly important, I think, is that there's now a renewed focus on individual accountability that the Trump administration had abandoned to some extent, where it was announced essentially that companies facing this kind of scrutiny are sp- supposed to identify all individuals. Uh, the previous administration had limited it to individuals who were substantially involved in supposed wrongdoing. So the deputy attorney general has changed that and eliminated the substantially involved and going back to, if people recall, the Yates memo, where uh, then deputy attorney general Sally Yates had proclaimed that companies to get any cooperation credit, specifically in the False Claims Act cases, would have to identify any and all individuals involved. And so the deputy attorney general has brought us back to that. And that's particularly important, I think, to the individual executives and frankly, anyone involved in decision making. And doesn't even have to be high levels. Apparently, it could be anybody. And we'll see how that shakes out. Yeah, that is definitely an important thing for our listeners, for sure. So you mentioned some comments by the deputy attorney general. The attorney general, Merrick Garland, has made numerous statements. He's talked about COVID-19 and how COVID-19-related fraud schemes are a top priority for DOJ, among other things. Kajah, how do you think his appointment has changed the trajectory of False Claims Act enforcement? It's going to have a significant impact over time. To take a step back, when you look at Merrick Garland, the judge, um, he was always seen as being a judge that was relatively favorable to the plaintiffs or the government in False Claims Act cases. Now, take him to his current position at DOJ, and we see that one of the first things he did six months into the job um, was to repeal what was called the brand memo, um, which was a memo that had basically directed DOJ um, not to pursue cases where the underlying liability was largely based on uh, a violation of, of regulatory guidance as opposed to a sort of formally um, promulgated regulation or, or violation of a, of a statute. Um, he quickly he came in and repealed that. And that probably was him responding, you know, in part to probably pressure from, you know, some of the more um, veteran people within the uh, civil fraud section who may not have been as excited about the brand memo when it was implemented, um, but certainly was consistent with the uh, more favorable, expansive view he had, take, he had on the False Claims Act as a judge. I think with respect to that COVID task force, I mean, there's a lot of money being thrown at um, trying to um, stabilize the economy in, in light of the pandemic. It's not a surprise that they're focusing in on uh, COVID-19 fraud enforcement. 
Um, but it'll be interesting to see kind of how those cases play out because a lot of the money going out was in the form of loans that weren't massive loans. So I'm not sure you're going to see a ton of these big, massive COVID-19 cases, but maybe a lot of smaller ones as they come through. All that enforcement is going to be certainly supported by an AG who is uh, certainly more favorable with respect to false claims act enforcement. Okay. Well, we've been talking about developments in enforcement and at the Department of Justice. Now let's talk a little bit about Congress, the False Claims Amendments Act. Now, it was introduced by a bipartisan group of senators and seeks to clarify the definition of materiality. Let's discuss, Gaja, first, what is materiality? And, and more importantly, what is this amendment trying to achieve? So the issue of materiality is, really goes to whether or not um, an alleged violation of a regulation um, or uh, some alleged action by a defendant would have the ability to impact the government's decision to pay out on a claim. The question is whether or not it was material to the claim, whether it, it, the government would not have paid for the claim but for the underlying act that the defendant is accused of. So it's a major issue in, in False Claims Act, Act cases. And it's one where, uh, in the wake of the Supreme Court's Escobar decision, is one that's been kind of hotly litigated. There's a, a fair amount of case law out there now that's developing, looking into this issue of materiality and whether or not the fact that the government continues to pay on a claim, even though it may have been made aware of the underlying facts or allegations, whether that ends a case right there, because it shows that the the facts or allegations are immaterial to the decision to pay, which should, you know would kill a false claims act case. And what we're seeing is some some case law developing where you know you have some particularly district courts basically ending litigation where that the government continues to pay on claims despite knowledge of the underlying conduct or allegations. And mostly seeing it at the circuit court level, some cases that are really determining that if there are multiple reasons why government may decide to continue to pay other than the one that's the subject of the, the False Claims Act allegations, then maybe there's another basis to find materiality there. In other words, the fact that the government continued to pay isn't necessarily determinative of whether or not it would ultimately agree that those amounts should have been paid at the end of the day. So that issue of materiality is being contested. And as a result of that sort of circuit split, we're seeing uh, legislation now that's being developed by a bipartisan group of uh, senators in Congress. And so they proposed a bill where they, they would amend the False Claims Act to make it basically more difficult and burdensome for defendants to argue that the government or later uh, failed to prove uh, materiality. So there was an original version of the amendment where they proposed that there would be new procedures established uh, for litigating materiality by permitting the government or later to basically establish materiality by a preponderance of the evidence. And if they did that, then the defendant could only rebut that materiality uh, determination through uh, clear and convincing evidence. Um, so it sort of tipped the scales where it made it a little bit easier for the government to show materiality, a little bit harder for the defendant to sort of rebut that that notion of materiality. There's obviously some discussion about that language and the original bill was proposed in July and then in October of 2021, there's some revised language that was added to the bill, tempering that burden shifting language such that the bill now states in determining materiality, uh, the decision of the government to forego a refund or pay a claim despite actual knowledge of the fraud or falsely should not be dispositive if other reasons exist for the decision of the government with respect to the refund or, pay or payment. In short, the fact that the government paid in and of itself is a, a determinative of materiality. There could be other reasons for the re reasons why the government continued to pay. And, you know, for example, I can think of one example of where the government is under a statutory obligation to make a payment or a contractual obligation to make a payment. 
and it's continuing to investigate allegations. Well, the fact that it continued to pay during that time period is one of those scenarios where there might be a reason other than the fact of payment that should be affecting the materiality analysis. Well, we can see why this amendment is so hotly debated and contested, and there are such strong opinions about it. I mean, it would change how we argue these cases in a lot of instances. So it appears that the amendment is, you know, widely supported by whistleblower advocacy groups, and you have a lot of industry, including the pharmaceutical industry, lobbying it against it. Tony, do you have any perspective on the the sort of push-pull here? Obviously, any company that finds itself as a, as a potential participant in this False Claims Act world is going to be opposed to this. I think from, from any business perspective, the first question would be, why do we need to alter the, the normal burden of proof analysis of any case to give a big assist to a certain um, portion of the population that's trying to enrich themselves through the False Claims Act law? And, and I think the answer is that the cases work themselves out just fine and there's no reason to have any legislative intervention to, to create this artificial burden shifting and, and make it a higher burden for a defendant to overcome. And, and understanding that the government may pay claims for all the different kinds of reasons. Um, I can think of one case in particular that I'm familiar with, the Trinity Industries case, where a highway safety product was... Um, and this was there was a there was a su- substantial uh, jury verdict in favor of the relators in in Texas that was flipped on appeal because the government the Federal Highways Administration was fully aware of uh, the changes that this highway safety product had undergone and it issued a memorandum saying that they knew about it and so f- thankfully in that case from the perspective of Trinity Industries the company. Um, the, the court of appeals reversed and, and said the you know that that's prima facie evidence that that it wasn't material and I think if you look at the cases and examples in the real world where these things are litigated typically one would say from the company perspective these things get sorted out and there's just no reason for this kind of artificial putting your finger on the scale that, that this legislation, appears to do. Spoken like a true defense counsel. We would expect nothing less, Tony. (laughs) Your $20 is in the mail. (laughs) I expect it any day now. Well, gentlemen, as we look ahead or down the road into 2022, what other developments do you think will be critical for companies to be aware of? I'll go ahead and kick it off. Certainly, I think um, there's some litigation going on with respect to the, the notion of objective reasonableness in false claims act cases. In particular, it looks like there's going to be a, a, a cert petition filed in the super value case coming out of the Seventh Circuit, where basically um, the issue being litigated is whether or not when you have an ambiguous statute or an ambiguous regulation, which candidly, as we all know, the vast majority of government regulations have some ambiguity in them, whether it's a lot of ambiguity or a little bit, a little bit or a lot, it depends. But in the context of sort of ambiguity in a regulation or, or statute, is it the fact that a defendant can point to it, what they did was an objectively reasonable interpretation of what the regulation or, or statute called for? 
that's an issue that's being litigated. And in fact, DOJ's sort of been popping into courts to try and stop some momentum that's been um, building uh, where courts are saying, yeah, there, if there's an objectively reasonable interpretation that could act as a, a basis for, uh, you know, a stopping a False Claims Act case. I think the other thing I'm really looking forward to seeing is really how the very hyped cybersecurity initiative um, ends up uh, playing out in practicality. But um, certainly, I know colleagues of mine here at, at Hogan's Levels have been closely following that and have definitely, have, we've, we've been out there with some thoughts on that issue. I love the healthy skepticism I'm hearing from both of you. Such a great defense counsel trait. Tony, how about you? What are you looking ahead at? In addition to waiting, I guess, in the, in, on, on some of these judicial interpretations under of the False Claims Act jurisprudence. A lot of us are really waiting for the other foot or any foot to drop in terms of the enforcement from the current administration. And we, we've all heard about the significant number of key TAMs that have been filed under seal. Um, and, and when is that going to pop? So really what I'm wondering is, is, is that going to happen this year, given the fact that everybody's working remotely? in these agencies and the prosecutors are working remotely and the courts are really slow now. I think that's why it's taken such a long time. I'd hate to say that this is going to depend on what happens with another variant of this hideous coronavirus. Or, But if, if people get back to work, things get quasi-normal. I expect that these those things are going to happen. There's going to be a lot more litigation actually unsealed and, and actually to where we're going to see across the country we're all going to get busier and our clients are going to potentially be facing some of these things. I love the Boston justice. It's not like waiting for a shoe to drop. In Boston, it's so cold. You're waiting for the whole foot to fall off. That is what's happening. I'm <laughs> loving it. Yeah. I agree with all that. I would also add that there's been such an increased use of telemedicine since the start of the pandemic and overall increased use of electronic health records. And so those are certainly a couple of additional areas of what we expect to be uh, subjects of continued and increasing DOJ focus in the year ahead that, that we'll be keeping our eyes peeled for. That's a perfect way to bring this episode to a close, as we're going to be delving deeper into a number of the topics that we just mentioned in future podcast episodes. So Tony and Kaja, I want to thank you both so much for spending this time with me today and sharing your insights uh, and for this really interesting, informative discussion. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in any of the issues raised during this podcast, we would love to hear from you. Please feel free to reach out to any of our podcast participants to talk through any of the questions or comments you may have. For additional analysis on this topic and others around the FCA, please download our latest publication, False Claims Act Guide 2021 and the Road Ahead from HoganLevels.com.